Thank you very much. My name is Dennis, and I'm an alcoholic. And I haven't had a drink today. I'm living in a miracle. And I've been in this miracle for quite some time now. Um, now, they say, uh, my sponsor used to say, um, life is short and have a lot of fun. And since I've been in North Carolina, I've had nothing but fun. Matter of fact, since I've been in AA, I have had nothing but fun. But more than that, I came down here early. And thank God I didn't get no speeding ticket coming down on 95. Because I drive fast. And uh, I spent a day with um, John over here at the Central Group in Fayetteville. And uh, he took me out to Fort Bragg. And then I come here and I be with you people. What a privilege. What a privilege to hear the speaker last night, BJ. And I want you to know that I... Identify with you, just about with everything. If I didn't do it, I thought it. And uh, the workshops and um, today, Mark told the story, and uh, I'm going to have a procedure in a couple of months. But when the uh, when, when when the anesthesia comes by me, I'm going to take a look at him, make sure he's all right. <laughs> After what he talked about today, I'm going to check him out, man. You know, you know, and. Uh, what a joy it's been for me here. Uh, I've been coming here since 1999, and through Bill Duncan brought me down here, because he said, I want you to meet some real people in service. And I've been coming just about every year ever since. Because there's something special in here. I, there's a power in here that's uh, just, to me, undescribable. But before I came in here, I, I had Larry lay some hands on me, and... Uh, there's a couple of gentlemen back there say talk slow because they might not understand me. So I told them I don't have no twang. You know, I might have a little one here and there. I might follow uh, Wallace's lead and say yonder. But uh, I'm just an alcoholic just trying to stay sober one day at a time. My home group is, my institutional home group is a step-out group of Alcoholics Anonymous. Located in Avenel, New Jersey. It's a maximum security prison for sex offenders. For sex offenders, and um, they don't fare too well in prisons. You all know that, and I know Bill Duncan started that meeting in Rawway State Prison, and it was on Five Wing. And because of the danger that was imposed upon those inmates, they moved them on the same grounds as Rawway State Prison. But there's about maybe between seven and nine hundred inmates in there. But my sponsor told me I am responsible when anyone anywhere reaches out for help. I want the hand of AOs to be there, and he impressed that upon me. So I don't judge. They want to stay sober. I'm there to help them stay sober. I've been privileged to be a member of that group and an outside sponsor for a little over 26 years, one day at a time. And um, I've been in corrections a little over 27 years, a day at a time, as a result of good sponsorship, real good sponsorship. Um, I love Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have to say that up front, because it didn't give me a life back. It gave me a, a totally new life. And as I tell you my story, you'll begin to understand that there's been a tremendous transition that had occurred in me based on what I was like. And I have to tell you what I was like uh, in a general way. Uh, maybe better still, I'll tell you what I was like. 
I grew up in a very, very uh, good neighborhood in Queens called Parkway Village. My mother worked at the U.N., and I went, was privileged to go to school with diplomat sons and ambassador sons at the International School. And my parents provided me with everything uh, for success. Um, there's one characteristic that I'll tell you about is I was never satisfied. I remember they got me a scooter, and I would say it was like a Rolls Royce or Ferrari. But I'd go to Bronx to my godmother's house, and they'd have the two-by-four with the box and the skates nailed to it, and I wanted one of them. Never satisfied. I had another thing about me that is probably apropos and prerequisite of being an alcoholic. I wanted what I wanted when I wanted. And I think I developed that when I first started thinking. You know, and uh, I didn't like authority. Uh, I didn't like people telling me what to do. You know, and um, I made good grades in school, and, but I was always in trouble. I'm, I'm short, so I must have the Napoleon conflict. Uh, whatever you call it, and uh, I had a big mouth. And not, now, a lot of people would always say, you know, I'm going to punch you in your arm, or I'm going to hit you in your chest. Everybody always told me, I'm going to punch you in your mouth, because I had, I had a big mouth, you know, and uh, boy, what a life that was. And, uh, but I love being in the Bronx. I, I, uh, excitement is a trigger for me, and I have to, I have to watch it. Um, I grew up in a very, very nice neighborhood, queen, quiet but I prefer to be in the Bronx, you know, with all the kids cursing and, and, and the stickball and going up and down the street and the gangs and all that stuff. And I used to come home with a little bebop cap on, and my mother said to me, what's the matter with you? Are you stupid? Does that remind you of something, BJ? You know, yeah, I, you know, are you stupid or something? And I said, no, I just, just like that. I could dress like this. And uh, I started getting into trouble early. Now, I never started out wanting to get in trouble, but I got in trouble early. You know, I started hanging around people. And, you know, mothers will tell you. My mother told me something, I guess, about 12, 13. She said, water seeks its own level. That means who you hang around is what you're going to become. And a lot of times I was bringing guys on my house. She said, don't bring them around here no more. Good mother wit, but I wasn't listening. You know, I think uh, one of the speakers spoke about being in church all the time. And I thought that was a solution. That was, a, that was my mother's solution for my behavior. Keep them in church. Wednesday night prayer meeting, Sunday at church, every week. I was there, but I probably didn't listen too well. Because I still had that thing about me. I wanted to do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. And it, it would be a, a detriment to me as I was growing up. There were some things I like to tell you how my mind worked. Uh, a sixth grade a teacher told me, she said, you can really become something if you could just learn to control your temper. And how do you do that? I didn't know why I was so angry. I was just angry. And I would flash out and I would go into blackouts when I would go be so angry. And uh, I don't know where that developed. The other thing, too, I would go, go to the Bronx and I would go down to 3rd Avenue to the A&P shop with my godmother. And across the street was a bar called The Hottest Spot in the Bronx. And, uh, man, it was a cut em up joint. You know, cops going there, people coming out of there bleeding. And I said, when I get old enough, I'd like to go in there, you know. <laughs> forgetting, forgetting about education, I just wanted to be a part of that nonsense. And I was a, you know what they say, defiance is an outstanding characteristic of most alcoholics. And that's, that, that, that's me, you know. I, you know, there's a line I love in the big book. It said, we have philosophical moral convictions galore. 
but we could live up to them even if we wanted to. And I was taught well as a child, but I never did. I never did what my parents told me to do. I always did what I wanted to do, and uh, I started drinking. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I drank because I wanted to drink. No other reason. I had no reason to drink. I drank because I wanted to. And because, like some speaker said the other, I was curious. I think George said it. I think BJ. I was a curious kid. You know, uh, I would sit there at my uncle's house, and I'd watch him and my uncle. And they'd be drinking, and they'd be laughing and talking. And after a while, an argument would break out. And not too soon after that, they start fighting. Now, I'm a kid sitting there observing this. And I'm not saying to myself, man, look what this stuff does to people. And why couldn't wait to get my hands on it? So as a, as a youngster, I started sipping drinks after parties at my mother's house. But I never got drunk. I just used to sip them just to see what it was like. And I started smoking cigarettes early. And it would make me so dizzy I couldn't stand up and not cut that loose. But one of the attributes I had was I was an athlete. I ran track and I played football. And I started to get into trouble in, in Queens. And my mother thought it would be good if I went upstate with my dad. He worked for the government up at Griffiths Air Force Base. But what we don't know, we're just moving that person from one place to another, you know, taking me with me. And uh, one of the incidents that did happen, I was about 14. I was hanging out with guys 16 and 17 years old, and uh, we're running down by Jamaica High School, and uh, a guy had a zip gun. Now, that's a handmade gun, uh, not a Uzi or, or what they have today. This was handmade. And when the guy saw the cop coming, he threw it in the ground and started running. And I started running, too. And the cop caused when he popped me upside my head with a billy club and took me right to 107 Precinct. And I sat in there for a couple of hours, and my mother came down, and she got me out of there. And I thought I was invulnerable. I don't know how she did it, but I thought I was invulnerable. One other time that I spent a day or two in jail, I was... Jump at the train style. I was late to work, and the line was all the way out to the street. And I told my girlfriend, I said, come on, man, we ain't got no time to wait for that. So when I went through the turnstile, the gentleman said, sir, could you come over here a minute? And when I went over to him, he says, do you have a transit pass? So I showed him my phone ID, and he went, uh, no good. So he turned around and cuffed me, took me to Forest Hills, to uh, Central Booking or Queens Booking. Got me in there. I'm sitting in a, um, like a holding cell. I asked if I use the phone. I called my boss and told him that I can't, I can't make it to work today. And tell him what, good thing they didn't have caller ID then to let you know to see that I was calling from a jail, you know. But I told him, I told him that I was, uh, I, I was sick and I couldn't make it in. And uh, So they, they shackled me with my legs and the handcuffs and I'm walking out to the paddy wagon. So they take us over to Queens Court where the, where the jail is there. And I'm in the jail. I'm standing with gabardine pants and a nice knit shirt. And I'm saying, I said, what am I doing up in here? So around lunchtime, they came and gave me a gourmet sandwich. You know, <laughs> white bread with a piece of cheese in it. And uh, I ate that. And about 4 o'clock, about 3.30, 4 o'clock, they called us down before the judge. And the judge said, are you guilty? I said, Yes, sir, with explanation. He said, there's no explanation. You're just guilty. 
gave me a fine. Now, today they just write a summons, but back in them days they wanted to teach you a lesson. So that's my jail experience. But as my story goes on, I can see that I, by the grace of God, I avoided the penitentiary and I avoided jail. So I moved up to Rome, New York, and uh, like I said, I ran track and played football. And there was another thing about my mind that i like to tell you about. When I was on the football team, if they weren't playing me, I'd be rooting for the other team. <laughs> now, that's, how, that's how big my ego was. Uh, I would root for the other team until they put me in, and then I would want to be the star. You know? Man, I was sick. I was really sick then and didn't even know it. Had no clue, you know. And uh, I remember one day my I had a track meet up in Watertown the next day, and I was standing outside the Circle Bar in Rome, New York, and a friend of mine handed me a bottle of wine, and I drank it straight down. Now, I'm a gulper. I even have to watch the way I drink water because I could drown myself because I, I drink fast, you know. And um, I remember getting a little dizzy and felt good. The lights looked different. He looked different. And right after that, I, I threw up. And I said to him, Mickey, give me some more of that stuff. <laughs> you know. Now, my body rejected that alcohol, but I wanted more. And that was the start, really, of just a long run of just pure drinking. I had graduated from high school. I'm standing out on the uh, train platform on my way to Indiana. I'm telling my, my father what I'm going to do out there, how great I'm going to be. Math major, Air Force, ROTC, I'm going to fly jets. Oh, you should have heard me out there. And uh, he was agreeing with me. I was 17 years old. I'm now going out on my own. I got to Indiana, drinking age of 21, I managed to drink just as much as everybody else. I wound up, after the first two quarters, I did pretty good in school. Last quarter, I just blew it and flunked out. And my mother, I came home and they sent the grades home to your parents at that time. I must say, I wasn't no damn good. She wasn't going to waste no more money on me. That's what I wanted to hear. That's what I wanted. Just to prove that I was capable of staying in that school and doing well, I applied to readmission and went back out there and took a battery of tests, intelligence, reading, and math, and scored very, very high. And then when they said they would accept me back on probation, I said, I'm not going back out there. They don't need me out there, you know. The ego, my God, did I, did I have one. So I came back home, and uh, I got a job at, at Bendix Aviation, and I uh, about 18, 19 years old, and all I did was drink. I drank in all the bars on Liberty Street in Utica, New York. I'd go back to Rome drinking all the bars, getting the fights, lose watches, the whole nine yards. And one night I told my mother I'm going to come down and visit, and I stayed the weekend, and I was on my way back to uh, Rome. And uh, you don't know about you, but I like to drive when I, I, I like to feel mellow when I was driving, you know. And I always had a bottle of uh, Tango or. Blackberry Ryan or something while I'm driving. So I wanted to be mellow while I was driving. Well, that mellow almost cost me my life. Uh, I found myself on an exit ramp in Schenectady, New York, and uh, I didn't go in any ravines. I'd hit no trees. I came to, and the car was doing about 40 miles an hour. The last thing I remember was being up on that freeway. I blacked out at the wheel. Now, I don't know any car that drives itself. But I can tell you I wasn't driving that car. 
Nor did it teach me a lesson because the first thing out of my mouth I said it was hot in there. I need to roll the windows down. It was too hot. And a lot of my, a lot of my driving was under the influence of alcohol. I was getting, getting, I was, I would lose like that, lose license, but I would get in accidents and speeding tickets the whole nine yards. And uh, I didn't learn anything. Didn't learn anything at all. I went to service in 1966. The only thing I'll tell you about the service is I drank. I went to jump school down in Fort Benning, Georgia, and uh, I couldn't drink in the jump area down there. I, I don't remember ever seeing any EM clubs or anything like that, but when I got to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, right back out here, my drinking just took off like it you'd never believe. Guys would come back from Vietnam, they was in the barracks drinking, smoking that dope, and I was right in there with them, right in there with them. You know, I was talking to John the other day, and it's amazing how I even made Reveille. I don't know how I made Reveille in the morning, you know, but I would manage to get myself together and get up there and stand up there, get inspected and go about my business. And uh, it's just amazing, simply amazing how much I drank. And I'm, I, half the time I didn't know where I was, you know, and uh, I was in a special unit in the United States Army. And um, I graduated from training group and got assigned to the third group here at Fort Bragg. And in... Uh, 1968, I got orders to go to Vietnam. And right before I went to Vietnam, I married my high school sweetheart. She was a piano player in church. Uh, she didn't know any better. And that's the only thing I can say. She just didn't know any better. Now, her mother used to drink Four Roses and Wilson's. And I, I don't know if you're all familiar with that, but that's right good. And when, I, and, when I, and when I was a teenager, when I was a teenager, she used to Invite me down in the base, say, Would you like a sip? And I'd say, Yeah, and I'd drink it, burn me from the time to my lips all the way down. And I didn't like the way it tastes at all, but whenever she offered it to me, I never said no. Never said no. And uh, so I married, I went to Vietnam, and uh, I went over there and I found people just like me. We had 460 mountain yards in my camp, and the mountain yards there made rice wine, and they made it in big vats. And to be a man, you had to drink it to the bottom of a straw, and you had a big bamboo straw that you drank out of. And I drank it. It would give me dysentery, diarrhea, give me headaches, and everything else. But whenever they made another batch, I said, give me some more of that stuff, you know. And, uh, you know, out there we drank Jack Daniels and Coke. We didn't have no fruit, but we had juice. And when I was in the team house, we drank a lot. Not on operations, now, I didn't, I didn't drink. Not at all. Not where I was. One night, or one day, uh, my interpreter, we were about to close that camp, and my interpreter said to me, we'd like you to come out and uh, come out to the village. It was about maybe about a mile or two away. So a couple of my team members and I went out, and uh, they live in a longhouse, a real longhouse, and it looks like all the family members live inside there. And... Uh, I had been drinking before I got there, and when I got there, I drank that wine all the way down to the bottom, and I went into a brownout. And my interpreter's brother, wife, came in front of me, and uh, she looked incredibly attractive, and I went at her. And next thing I knew, I was being dragged to the end of that longhouse. And the next thing I knew, the sun was coming up. Now, God saved me, because the Montagnard should have killed me right then. And not only that, if that village had come under attack, I was defenseless. Totally defenseless. But do you think it taught me anything? No. 
not a thing. Not a thing. I say to myself, I'm not going to do it anymore and go right back and do the same thing. My team, my team sergeant came off an operation one time. And he said, you should pray every day for the rest of your life because you shouldn't be here. He looked at me like I was a ghost. He said, what I saw, you shouldn't be here. And I, I thank God, and then that would be it, and I start drinking, and just forget about it. I came home in 1969. My wife had got a nice, beautiful place in Queens uh, called Lefrak City in Regal Park. And uh, my friends used to ask me, how would you get in there? I said, I don't know. My wife got us in there. My mother might have co-signed for it. But every time somebody tried to do something good for me, I always went the opposite way. Always went the opposite way. And... Uh, so I'm married to her, and uh, Friday night was my night out. Then it became Saturday night, then Sunday night. And there were times I'm ashamed to say I forgot I was even married. Out there chasing the women and drinking and going here and going there. And then some, sometimes I would stay home. And uh, when you have two people in the same house drinking, you have problems. And uh, she drank Johnny Walker Red, and she'd sit, over, she'd sit over there in the corner by, by her little bar, and I'd be sitting there watching TV, minding my business, drinking vodka. And it seems like it, I came back from a kid on how booze changes people. Because as she drank, she started bringing up stuff that happened 10, 5, 10 years ago. And she expected me to remember all that. I said, well, some of it I did remember. But then she started me calling me all kind of names, and none of them were Dennis. <laughs> and it, it was almost like when she started cursing, it was, it was all curse words in one sentence. I've never heard nobody talk like that in my life. And then if I didn't respond to her, she would throw something at me. And, and today, I, I really don't like nobody throwing at, anything at me, to be honest with you. And, uh, you know, police would come to the door, the whole nonsense over and over and over again. And finally, one day, in 1974, I told my, my mother, I said, I'm going to leave her because she's an alcoholic. <laughs> you know, always putting the onus on somebody else. Always putting the onus on somebody else. And, uh, I remember she was, she was vacuuming the rug, and I... Uh, I walked out on her. I had secretly got another apartment in the same complex and literally walked out on her. And uh, she didn't say come back. You know, she didn't even wave. She just looked at me as I, as I went out. And a little late on that year when tax season came up, you know, I went over there and I knocked on the door. <laughs> and uh, she came to the door and she says, you know, you're not supposed to be here. So I said, why? I said, I came for the taxes. She said, I got an order of protection out against you. I said, I thought you loved me. And uh, taking out order of protection against me. And uh, she said, you're not supposed to be within 500 feet of this apartment. I said, oh, my God. I said, all right, well, then mail it to me. I'm going, I'm going back home, man. That's the kind of life I led. Now, I'm sober about two years in Alcoholics Anonymous. And through the 12 steps in a real good sponsor, I got to find out about myself. And I was able to go back and make amends to her. And her mother. I'll never forget what her mother told me. She said, you almost caused my daughter a nervous breakdown. And I didn't thought I was bothering anybody. And I hope and pray to God nobody ever says that about me again. And even though I was with somebody else at the time, engaged somebody else at the time, I remember her mother saying, if you come back up to Rome, we'd like to see you again. 
That's the power of this program. Because I got honest and told them, the problem with that marriage is not my wife's fault, it was my fault. I was able to see it. I was just too wild when I came back from Vietnam. And she didn't deserve that because she was a good girl. She was a church girl. I mean, she was a good girl. A good woman. I shouldn't say girl, good woman. And uh, I talked to her every once in a while today. You know, my men's were complete with her. I met my present wife and I put her through 10 years of living hell that I put myself through. I drank a lot. And on the job, every once in a while, they would call me in and they would say, is there anything we can do to help you? And I would arrogantly, arrogantly tell them to mind their own business. You know, I know what I'm doing. I had a son born in 1976. And maybe for maybe before he was born, uh, I took my wife to the hospital. And the doctor said, uh, we'll call you when the, we'll call you when the baby's born. In other words, get out of here. And I looked at my wife, aren't you going to say something? And she, she didn't want to start no trouble. So I went home and found out my baby was born. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. And I got excited because he was born on my, on my father's birthday. But that's the way it was with me. You go home. You, I don't want you here. You know, most, most fathers can be in the waiting room or in the operating room or with, with their spouses when they. I couldn't. I was too drunk. Too drunk. And the doctor recognized and he told me in a nice way, we'll call you when the baby's born. Hurts me to say that. Really hurts me to say that. But that's my story, and I gotta remember it. I have to remember it. What alcohol did to me. As I continued to drink, I was falling uphill on the job. I was getting promotions. Uh, they were sending me out on business trip to Chicago to allow the Belcor out there, and they were sending me down to Florida school, and I never learned a thing. Because I was a happy hour person. Once happy hour came and I started drinking, there was no stopping me. You know, that thing about the physical compulsion, the mental obsession, I had it all the time. All the time. And uh, I was taught betterness as a child. I began to leave home. I know my little boy, when he was about three or four, he used to come to the door, Daddy, where you going? And you know, I'll be right back. But you and I know we pick up that first drink. We don't know when we're coming back. And then after a while, he stopped coming to the door. You know, these are things I have to remember. How much destruction this did to my family. And my wife was wearing winter clothes in the summer, summer clothes in the wintertime, and some clothes year-round. And I made a lot of money. Couldn't provide for my family. Because I was so much in the grips of alcohol that it was impossible for me, due to my selfishness and my irresponsibility, I was not a husband. I was not a father. So every once in a while, my wife would go on a business trip, and um, she'd leave me with my boy. He'd be about five, six years old. And I started drinking. I'd put him in front of a TV and turn to lock the door and go out and go downstairs and play OTB, because I, I like horses. I like gambling. And um, I started drinking with the fellas on the corner. When I come back upstairs, he'd be sitting there scared out of his mind. Uh, they call that endangering the welfare of a child. And I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty of social workers coming to my house. I couldn't believe it when a social worker came. As I had this corner, hey, look, I'm a manager to talk, and my wife is this, and I, there's no trouble in here. But there was. 
And I can't deny it. There was trouble. You know, I, I would go and stay for days upon end out in the street. And every once in a while, the guilt would hit me and the remorse. Then I'd make, make a phone call and see how everybody was. And then I'd take a drink and I'd forget about it. Forget completely about it. Then after a while, whatever that was, stopped happening. And that's the frightening part. I, I had lost all concept of moral, have lost all concept of caring. You know, and I was at work one day and uh, somebody came in to relieve me because I had passed out. And they were banging and hollering. And they said, we thought you were dead. And they said, go home. And I felt bad. And as soon as I got to the next bar, I didn't feel bad anymore. And all this time, behind the scenes, uh, they're writing me up. And I don't know it. And I don't have no union protection. And uh, that was what it was like. I had episodes, uh, twilight zone experiences on the train when I couldn't get off the train. And I'd go from one end to the other end. And then when the door would open, I'd say, that's my stop, and the door would close, and I'd sit back down and fall out. And then when I finally did get off the train, on a sunny day, I heard George say about being a habitual liar, I was a pathological liar. Now, that's a liar that believes, not only does he believe his own life, believes that you believe it too, you know. And I used to, while I walked down Junction Boulevard on my way home, and the sun's hitting me, and I'm, I'm drunk, I'm trying to think of what kind of lie can I tell my wife, and I walk in the house and she give me the hand like that. In other words, we don't need it. I don't want to hear it. And uh, boy, what a life that was. So finally, finally in uh, September 1984, I came home from a friend of mine's wake. And uh, there was a note on my nightstand. The note said, I can't take it anymore. And my wife and my son left me. And I cried like I'd never cried before in my entire life. And I got on my knees and asked God to help me. Then as soon as I got off my knees, I started drinking. I started drinking again. So I called my mother and asked her where she thought they might be. I called her job, and her job said, don't call here no more. We don't want to hear from you. And uh, finally, after about a week... My wife called me and said, I have to let you see your son, but I don't have anything else having to do with you again in life. She said, you've become a monster. And I hope nobody ever calls me that again as long as I live. So she said, I'll bring, my, bring your son over to your mother's house on Saturday, but I don't want to see him. And if I can remember the look in, in Rashad's eyes, I, I can't drink again a day at a time. I went to my friend... Also, he said, go in, the, go in the kitchen, get a shot of cognac, and get a, get a blow, take a blow. And right then I said, I don't care if she'll never come back. I just didn't care. Good friend of mine moved to me. He was a big uh, non-conference approved dealer. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I, remember, I, remember, I remember in the, in the midst of uh, that activity that I found myself crying. I wanted my family back. So I uh, came home one morning and 
I don't know if you were familiar, but there was a time when I couldn't distinguish whether it was morning or evening. And I had a, some woman at my house, and uh, I found myself butt naked, just like my uncle when he reached for the telephone and died from alcoholism. Only when I reached the phone, I called my boss. And I said, I, I didn't make it to work today. And he said, yeah, what else you want to tell me now? And uh, I said, well, I, I, I want some help. He said, well, come in Monday. This was on a Friday. He said, come in Monday. We'll send you to a counselor. So I go up to 11 West 42nd Street, and uh, there's this black guy sitting behind the desk. And I go in there, and I say, you know, I'm a college graduate. They're not promoting me. The phone company's prejudiced. You usually heard me up in there. And that man, <laughs> and that man said to me, get out of my office. Report back to your He'll work location and we'll be in touch with you. Didn't give me any signal. I was too blinded by alcoholism to pick up on what was happening. So that's what it was like. But let, let me tell you what happened. <laughs> what happened is the most significant part of my story. Because when I start to talk about what happened, now I gotta start talking about God. And I hope you don't have no problem with that because, uh, if you do, maybe you can use good all the direction of a group of drunks. But I'm going to talk about the God of my understanding and what happened. I uh, went out on a date with this woman. and uh, She was from Fort Myers, Florida. And when I brought her back to my house, she started talking about her higher power. And I said to myself, what kind of mess did I get myself into here? <laughs> you know, and uh, She was going back to Fort Myers the next day. And I said to her, she said, you know, my prayers are very, very strong. I'll pray for you. And uh, I know my mother was praying double time. I mean, she was praying constantly for me. I, I know it. And um, she had done a lot for me. She was a great enabler. Uh, if you went to my house, it looked like her old house because she gave me her couch and her drapes and everything. And it was when, when she came out, it was like going back into her old place. You know, and because uh, I never spent my money on anything but me. That's how selfish and self-centered I was. And um, I, um, I love my mother today dearly. Because like I heard a gentleman say, she stuck by me. Stuck by me all the time and enabled me. But it was her love, I believe, that got me here. Because I know when my mother prays, I know it's strong too. So I brought her back to the Bronx, and uh, I came home, and as I usually do, I pass out. Now, I don't remember any dreams, any lights, any flashes, I don't know, none of that. But I knew when I came to, I didn't want it anymore. And I haven't wanted it from that moment to this moment now. And for an alcoholic of my type, just to make that statement, I'm not talking nothing short of a miracle. I stayed in the house all day, didn't go out. And without a drink, the mind starts to go crazy. And I remember sitting there that evening, I had too much pride to call my mother, too much pride to call anybody. But my mind went crazy. So bad that I was afraid to go to sleep. I thought if I woke up, I wouldn't have any mind left. So I stayed up most of the night. I don't 
Hope I never forget that because if I remember that, there's nothing wrong today. Nothing other than what I manufacture. Absolutely nothing. I got myself together, went to work the next day. And I told Eddie, one of my, one of my managers, I said, I'd like to talk to you. So right away they have to get somebody else because they need a group to make sure to verify what I'm saying. And I told him, I said, I think I'm losing my mind. He said, we could have told you that a long time ago. <laughs> what do you want to do about it? They, made, they went over to the district secretary and made a phone call. And I was literally carried up to the medical department on 13th floor. And there was one of us there. <laughs> Dick V may rest in peace. And he was sitting behind a desk and my boss was sitting behind, sitting behind, right by, and it looked like I was before a parole board. And uh, he asked me, he said, what's, what's the problem, young man? I said, I think, I think I have a problem with drinking. So right away he says, do you do drugs? I said, no, no, I don't do no drugs. My bosses were sitting there, I'm not going to mention no drugs. I've been drinking a drug for 25 years, but I'm not mentioning no drugs. <laughs> you know, and... Uh, he said, we can help you. I hope I never forget that. Because at that moment, I thought they were going to put me in a, a mental hospital with, with, with uh, pads on the walls and maybe shock treatments. I had no idea. He says, no, we're going we're gonna to send you to Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, what's that? See, nobody in the bars after hours I went to ever mentioned being powerless over alcohol. You know, and if their lives were unmanageable, they weren't admitting it. You know, and... Uh, he said, uh, I want to give you 20 questions. I don't know, 20 or 30 questions. And I sat down there and I got them all right. I got 100. Now, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know where the honesty came from. I have no idea where the honesty came from. But I got them right. And uh, he said, we're going to send you away to a treatment center. And I said, no, no, wait a minute. I got some business I got to take care of first. Now, I hadn't taken care of no business in over 10 years. And all of a sudden, I got to take care of some business. You know? <laughs> And my boss was sitting back there going like this, you, you better go. And uh, I told him, I said, I'm going to go. So my mother and father came and picked me up on a Saturday morning and drove me 300 miles to Pennsylvania. My mother said, I would have driven you to California if necessary. And when I got to that treatment center, there was a sign on the wall. Today is the first day for the rest of your life. And my mother said, you better pay attention to that sign. And I did. Not only was I given the gift of surrender, I was given the gift of willingness. Because I never fought it. I got in there and they gave me a big book. And I read it and read a paragraph and forget what I read. And I said, oh my God, I've destroyed my brains. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the counselors said, no, just start jotting down things as you're reading it. It'll start to come back to you. We went out to meetings, and they brought meetings in, and I stayed there for a month. And uh, I want to tell you something that happened to me the last week there that was incredible. Uh, one of the guys in our session all of a sudden got an urge to jump up and just run out. And it frightened me. And I found myself on the telephone talking to my boss saying, hey, you know, I'm all right now. They said, no, you're not. You stay there until the term is up. And I, something clicked. Something clicked. Something clicked in me. And it frightened me. 
And I went to my counselor and I told her, she said, that's good. That's real good. The meeting came in that night. And uh, the guy, I think, had about six, seven years. He said, I want you to read how it works for me. And after the meeting, I want you to come and talk with me. So I read how it works. We went through the meeting. And after the meeting, he said to me, what happened today? Tell me what happened today. And all I remember was he kept saying, stay with it. I had changed. I went outside, and I thanked God. And I came back inside and got some of my peers together, and I started to empty some stuff out. The guy that accidentally had shot in Vietnam, and uh, one of my CIDG guys, and a baby that I had abandoned, well, had this girl put up for adoption. A lot of stuff started coming out, out of me. And when I left that institution, I remember when I was going back to the airport, the guy says, I think you're going to make it. When I got to the airport, I was to meet my temporary sponsor. He said, I've been working a lot of hours. I can't really make a meeting tonight. And I said, well, I hope he stays sober. I went to my first meeting on my own. It was at the Roosevelt Hospital Winston Group on 59th Street, Manhattan. And on one side, they were slippers and robe. The other side, they were jumping up and down and having a good time. And I knew I was in the right place. The guy was celebrating 10 years. I don't think I heard too much of what he said, but I was very comfortable. Now, my wife had said I can come out to Brooklyn and visit her or visit my son. It was in the evening. So my mind says she's going to let me spend the night. You know, well, when I got out there, I told her, I said, I'm in AA. And she said, that's nice, but you can't stay here. And uh, I cried all the way back to Queens. But I didn't drink. Monday morning, I went to, uh, went to work, and um, I was in the break room. And in the break room, I started crying because I said, I don't have to do this a day at a time for the rest of my life. And today, I know that's a cry of joy. I went to a uh, Chamber Street group, and it was the old time named Tom Fogarty. He said, we've been saving this seat for you. And I said to myself, how did he know I was coming? And uh, I've been down front ever since. I've been down front ever since. I met my sponsor, Sonny, and he told me something that I'm going to tell you. He said that I was home, that I wouldn't have to suffer anymore. And I haven't. I haven't thrown up on myself. I haven't had my head stuck in any toilet bowls. And I know where I am right now. I'm in Southern Pines, North Carolina. When I was drinking, I hope people had to tell me where I was. He said there are 12 steps and 12 traditions. You put them in your life, you become a whole new person. And the next thing out of my mouth is, Sonny, how do I get my family back? He says, you're not here for your family. You're here to get sober. And I believe that man. He said, if they come back fine, if they don't, you just move on. Somehow or another, I believe. And after I had 90 days and about four months, I was going through the steps and traditions with him. And uh, he asked me, he said, do you want to be happy in AA? I said, yeah. He said, then follow me. He started carrying me around institutions with him. The first one was the Edgecombe Men Facility up in Washington Heights. It's a work release for guys coming out of Danamora, Clinton, Sing Sing, etc. And I would sit there, just watch everything he did, because I want to be just like him. 
And after I sat there for about nine months, he said, I got a commitment in, in Brooklyn. I got to go speak. I want you to take the meeting for me. And that was my start in corrections. What a blessing that man has been in my life. I experienced something when I first went in there with him. I said, I, I don't know what it is, but all of a sudden the noise stopped. <laughs> I feel comfortable in here. He said, well, then keep doing it. In May of 1985, he said, I want you to put on a suit and a tie. And I want you to come out to Rikers Island. I don't know if you know Rikers Island is one of the largest jail complexes in the world. And he had a commit, commitment there at the men's house of detention. And he said to me, he said, I put on a suit and tie. And I said, we're going to jail. Put on a suit. He said, put on a suit and a tie. And I went out there. And uh, to get on the Rikers, you got to get checked before you at the bridge, and then you go over the bridge, you get checked again in the main center. Then you got to get on. You can't walk on the grounds. You got to get on the bus and go out to the institution. And he did that every Sunday, along with Avenel and Bedford. I, he, he was in prisons, and uh, I said to him, "I said you do this, you do this every every Sunday." He said, "Yeah," and he kind of looked at me like you're gonna be doing it too, and. Uh, <laughs> And uh, sure enough, I went into that meeting. I went into that meeting, and it was just one inmate, a correction officer, and my sponsor. It was the best meeting I've had in my life. Because when I came out of that, that facility, it was almost like my life flashed in front of me. I should have been in there. And when I got back outside, I said to God, if you allow me to live a day at a time, I'll do this the rest of my life. And I've haven't stopped fulfilling that commitment up until this moment right now. Because I realized the gift. At two years, he asked me, he said, Brother, I don't need to coach you out at Rikers Island C95. How would you like to do it? Yes, sir. And I started doing C95. My commitment would start at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and then end until 10 o'clock at night. So I had to pick up the speaker, bring him there, do all the stuff. Do the commitment, go take him home. And I did that. And uh, I remember one time I, I told one time the speaker didn't show up. And I said, Sonny, I'm not inviting him no more. And he didn't show up. He said he wasn't supposed to be there. <laughs> he wasn't supposed to be there. If he was supposed to be there, he would have been there. He wasn't supposed to be there. And that stopped me from ever complaining about nobody not showing up. There's a reason for everything. And uh, at the time I was going down to Avenel and... Uh, I think I'd become an uh, outside sponsor there, and in, in 1991, he had started meeting back up. In 1992, he started meeting back up at Bedford Hills for women. And uh, Bill Wilson uh, did that prison as an outside sponsor. And uh, Sonny started back, so we started going up there on Wednesdays, too. So I was doing four prison commitments a month. Not only that, I'd, I'd gone on in the service structure, I'd become area chair, Area 44, and I'd also was honored and privileged to do four years up at World Services on the, on the Corrections Committee. And I met some powerhouses up there, Don P. for one. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot. Uh, it seemed like everybody was trying to take care of me. I was at a conference dinner one time, and uh, a guy named Wayne P., I know you know him, came and sat next to me. And told me, he says, um, he just told me a story. I unsolicited, just told me a story. And then he said, uh, I'm just a country boy. 
<laughs> I'll never forget it. He said, I started out as a GSR, became a DCM, became an area officer, became a delegate, and then became a trustee. He said, I'm, I'm now the gentleman. He said, I don't know how I got here. I'm just a country boy, Dennis. What an inspiration. All you got to do is suit up and show up and carry this message of love and hope to those still suffering alcoholics. And God has a plan. No question in my mind about it. Has a plan for us. And um, I, um, I have a wife uh, that came back in my life when I was about 11 and a half months sober. And uh, I just didn't drink. I went to meetings. I trusted God. I cleaned house and I worked with others. And here was a woman who said she wouldn't have, any, have anything else ever to do with me in life. And she came back in my life. And, uh, and there was times when uh, she would get on my nerves and I'd tell my sponsor. <laughs> and my sponsor said, I know her very well. You need 12 steps just to be like her. So leave her alone. You know, leave her alone. In fact, he used to tell me sometimes, you know, when you wake up in the morning, just don't bother nobody. Just leave everybody alone, you know. <laughs> he, said, he said you might have a great day if you do that, you know. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I was the type who, in the beginning, used to complain a lot. And uh, My old home group commuter special on 31st Street and 7th Avenue in New York. And Tom talked about the three legacies that had. I was a service group. Everybody in that group did service. And uh, tough to complain down there. You know, them old timers would say, did you drink today? I said, no. They said, well, you're way ahead of the game. You know, and Andy, if you even look like you're going to complain, he would say, you need to go help somebody. You're not grateful. See, that's kind of that's old timers I, I came along with. And my sponsor wouldn't stand for it. Wouldn't stand for any complaining. He'd say, I mean, if you... Realize what you had, how can you ever complain? You know, but I, he also told me one time, he says, you, you can become addicted to complaining. You know, and I, I thought about that. I don't want to be a, a, a constant complainer, you know, and uh, Sonny passed away October 27, 2011. He was my sponsor for 27 years. And, uh, you know, it's tough for me to talk about him because he uh, died in a nursing home with Alzheimer's. And it's tough to see that. But he was accepting of it and helped me to become accepting of it. And um, for the last two years, I was his meeting. I was his meeting because all he can do was sit in a wheelchair. And he had a stroke and he could hardly talk. And I would ask him uh, often, Sonny, are you still praying a lot? He said, all day long. He said, remember, Dennis, God's in charge. I'll never forget that. Went down there to see him, and I, the head attendant met me in the hallway, and she said, uh, I thought he'd gone back to the hospital again. She said, no, he passed away in his sleep, and I was, I was hurt. Because here's a man who took me off the scrap heap. It led me into a good life of Alcoholics Anonymous. Showed me the way. Never told me what to do, but showed me the way. You know, and, uh, you know, my mother, uh, today I'm a son. I put everything aside on Wednesday except meetings. I made my morning meeting at my home group at, at um, Morning Miracles and 
And at night, I go to my old home group in New York. But I give her the whole day. I got to drive her around. She doesn't drive anymore. Today, I can be a son. You know, and uh, I'll tell you how much she loves Alcoholics Anonymous. When I celebrated 25 years, she came to my anniversary. and We have a big group. And she sat there and she said, what can I buy everybody? <laughs> I said, I said, I'm hoping some of these thugs in here don't hear that because they might ask her for a loan. You know what I mean? And, uh, she just wanted to buy everybody something. And since I retired in 2002, uh, we've been around the world together. My wife and my, my mother and my sister, because my daddy passed away in 2004. He didn't want to go. But we went to Greece and we went to Singapore. And as soon as we get off the plane and hit the hotel, my mother said, have you called your friends yet? Have you called your friends yet? <laughs> I always carried an international director with me because I'm a meat maker. You know, and... Uh, I'm sober a while now, and every day when I call and talk to her, are you going to make your meeting today? Now, I make meetings every day, and she knows, but she, don't leave that AA. Don't leave them people. I don't know what they do down there, but don't leave them people. <laughs> you know, and uh, my daddy, I heard BJ talk about his father, and I heard George have a little anim animosity towards his father, and I... I did too. My father reached across the table with me when I was about eight years old and hit me in the head. Oh, of course, what my sister did, and I saw stars. I literally blacked out. And, uh, that went into the recesses of my soul. It was uh, into my subconscious. And he took care of me, helped me in Little League. He came to all my track meets, came to all my football games. He did everything he could for me. But I couldn't let that go. And uh, in sobriety, my sponsor would say, you got to forgive. And I did the four. I did all the steps and, and I just couldn't make the amends because I was still acting the same way. Uh, I would get them churns in my stomach. And I go to my mother's house and I said, look, I, I, I got to leave because he's he starting to bother me. And I'm sober maybe eight, nine, ten years. I just couldn't let it go. I held on to that victim thing for a long time. I just couldn't forgive him. I couldn't do it. So my sponsor said, just be willing to do it. And I'd pray, and i use all them prayers in the book, and I'd do everything, and I was willing. And it didn't happen in my time. It just didn't happen in my time. But I'll tell you what did happen. Sonny was speaking out in Columbus, Ohio, so some uh, roundup, some for Roundup, and Don P. was on the program, too, and I remember listening to him, and uh, I came back home, and Warren from GS, GSO had, had the commitment at Bedford Hills, but he wanted to go on vacation, and I said, well, I'll take it, because I still have the pass to get in, and uh, I took a, a friend of mine's sponsee up there, and she spoke, and you could have heard a mouse go across the floor in that, in that cafeteria. Her story was maybe the most powerful story I've ever heard in my life. And uh, I went home and I hugged my father. And I told him how sorry I was. How ashamed I was when I raised my hands at him when I was 19 years old. And he said he might have something to do with that too. Whatever that was was gone. And I had nothing to do with it now. 
Because if I had anything to do, it would have been gone a long time ago. I believe that I had suffered enough and God removed it. I believe God gave me the gift of forgiveness. I really believe that. He got sick at my sister's birthday in Washington, D.C. And uh, we took, put him in the hospital. And uh, he was 90 years old at the time. And uh, the doctor said only 30% of his heart was working or some old thing. And his kidneys were bad. And we told him, hurry up and get him, get him, get him ready so we're going to bring him back to New York. And, through the grace of God, I had bought a Mercedes-Benz, C32 AMG. And uh, I'm going back and forth between Jersey and D.C. because I had commitments. And I'm about commitment. I show up my commitment. I'd run back, then run up to my commitment and run back. I must have put, I don't know how many miles on that car, but uh, on the way back home, we came in a rest area. And he had to go to the bathroom, so my mother held a cup for him. And somehow or another, I jerked the car, and pee went all over the back seat. <laughs> you know, so right away, I got a little attitude. And uh, I walked around. I got the rugs out and got them washed up. And I kissed him on his forehead, and I said, you can, you can urinate all over this car. It's all right. When I got him home, the doctors came on a Sunday. I know if they do it here, they have uh, home visits, but they do still do one. His doctor did in New York, and on Sunday they said they told my mother, get him ready. And uh, I stayed with my mother Wednesday, because that's the night my home group met. And I remember that day before I went to that meeting, I remember I wanted to give him some water because he was kind of coughing, and he kind of waved it away. Yeah, yeah. You get a chance to see God sometimes. You get a chance to see him. And I went to that meeting. I came home. I'm sitting in my sister's room watching TV. And my mother came and said, I think he's gone. And I went in there. And the fireman come up there with all these. I said, man, leave him alone. He's, he's gone. But I know my relationship with him was right. It was right. You know, and uh, I thank God for that. Because I struggled with that for a long time. Even in AA. No matter how active I was, no matter how many meetings I made, no matter how many big books I studied, God took it when it was time. And I'll be forever grateful to my high power for that. You know, my, um, my son, the one who suffered with me, is 35 years old today. For about the first 12 years, he wouldn't have nothing to do with me. Maybe even longer than that. He talked to me only because he felt he needed to talk to me. And I told my sponsor, you know, what's wrong with him? And my sponsor said, nothing. He said, uh, you know, what, how would you feel if he asked his mother, where's your daddy at? And she had no answer for him. How would you feel if maybe he heard her crying at night? How would you feel? At that point, I shut up. Today, he's 35 years old. He won't come in the house and he won't leave without saying, Daddy, how you doing? He works for Merrill Lynch now. And, you know, we had a few years ago, we were talking about balance. You know, I never worried about balance. I heard Tom once say, when I'm about God's business, I don't have to worry about nothing. Both my boys graduated from college. I had nothing to do with none of that. I owe it all to my wife. 
She took care of home while I was out there, still trying to help the still, suffer, still sick and suffering alcoholic, especially those in institutions. You know, I, today you don't have no problem asking me for help and fix this car. You know, and my younger boy is 26. He's never saw me drink, but he saw me drunk one night. I came home. I was about nine years sober, and uh, I guess something happened. A job is, I don't know. I, I went crazy. My wife said something to me. I threw a magazine at her. She got me, ran out of the house screaming, and my boy was sitting on the stairs screaming. And I got in my car, and I started driving around Field. Because Field was not that big. And I was trying to find her, and I couldn't find her. And it scared me to death. But she came back, and I was able to make amends. And I'm very glad to say I haven't repeated that behavior in 19 years, or 18 years. And I made amends to my little boy. It was wrong for me to... Talk to your mother like that and treat her like that. See, my amends today is it's wrong. Not I'm sorry. It's wrong. Wrong. Admit my wrongs, you know. And uh, what a life I've had here. What a life. I used to go down to see Sonny and uh, John Q used to go with me. And uh, at about 25 years sober, I, I told John, I don't think Sonny can really sponsor me anymore. I said, I'm... Um, I can't do this by myself. Would you please help me? Would you be my sponsor? And he said, he'd be glad to. He's a lot like Sonny. No nonsense. Very well versed in his steps, traditions, and concepts. But what really drew me to him was I had known him for a long time in the service church. I'd always seen him. Always seen him. Always been around him. But he's a past trustee. But what impressed me the most about him was I went to his home group. And he was standing at the door greeting newcomers as they came in. What a humble man. What a humble man. I say, yeah, that's the kind of guy I want to be my sponsor. You know, and he's no nonsense. He doesn't like you to say the same thing twice. He cuts you right off. And I love it. Great man. Great man that came into my life. God has always blessed me with good people. Bill Duncan, and you all know him very well, brought me down here in 1999. And uh, he passed away in 2004 out there in Asheville, North Carolina. And I was talking to his wife on the phone. I told us, I told Pat, I said, put the phone by his ear so I can talk to him. Pat said, Dennis, he can't talk. I said, well, I'm on my way down there. So I drove from Jersey overnight down to Asheville, North Carolina. I got there, and they were putting this tube down his throat to help his breathing. And they weren't feeding him, and I got angry. And Pat said, come with me, Dennis. She gave me a little pamphlet. It said, understanding the dying. And when I went in there, I read it now. I don't have no problem with death anymore. At all. At all. I remember telling him, I said, hey, hey Bill, I'm going to a meeting. Now, Judy was out there. Judy and her husband was out there in Asheville. I said, I'm going to a meeting. He says, all right, see when you get back. <laughs> yeah. And he died Tuesday on his 88th birthday. Sober 51 years. And, I, and I'll tell you how he helped me. What a great example of commitment. Because I remember him when he was a tall man. And he was sprite. And he'd take a gate and be by. I almost had to run double time to keep up with him. And then he went to the uh, cane. Then from the cane to the walker. And from the walker to the wheelchair. And then he had throat cancer. And he couldn't talk well, so he brought a, 
a box with a microphone. He didn't give up. He went with me every Monday, every Tuesday, and every Friday to Mama County. And we were we were going back one time on the Garden State Parkway, and uh, I was taking him home, and I said, "You've just blown every every excuse I could ever make for not making a meeting in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I'm making that prison meeting. You've just wiped it out, wiped it out. I have I, I can't find I, there's just no excuse because I watched him." And God has always done that for me. He placed people in my life that showed me commitment. You know, don't say you can do something and don't do it. That's what my sponsor told me. If you can't do it, say no. But if you can do it, say yes. And uh, what a great, great, great example that man was for me. And I, I had the privilege of being his chauffeur for quite a number of years. What a privilege. My God, what a privilege. God has blessed me here beyond description. He's given me a gift that I can't describe to you. And I think the only thing that he ever, ever, ever requires of me is give it back. And I hope I've done that this evening. God bless you.